0: Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege that we have to gather together in the freedom of this nation to uh, study your word and worship you through the highest form of worship, which is to study your word, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things through the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, this morning, and that we should be able to transfer this into epinosis in our souls. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We continue to pray for the conflicts that we're involved in in Iraq, the conflict over terrorism. We pray for our president. We pray for his advisors. We pray for military and civil leaders that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would continue to protect and watch over this nation. And especially, Father, we pray for those from this congregation and those who are uh, part of the extended congregation, those who are involved in tape ministry and serving in the military, especially those serving overseas. We pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe, and we pray that you would continue to strengthen their families during this time of, of separation. Now, Father, we Pray that you would help us to uh, comprehend what we are studying today, that we might be encouraged and challenged by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I got a lengthy email from Dan last night. You can tell he's written a number of military action reports, so I'm going to have to summarize this because of the detail in which he uh, he. he re- wrote everything down. He's. Uh, they had a great week at camp. He thought it was quite ironic that uh, the kids were from ages 7 to 13, about half split between gir- girls and boys. And the irony was that he was stuck with the kids uh, that were 7, 8, 9 years of, old. He, of age. He got the young boys. Uh, Chandra got the young girls. And there was also another American uh, girl over there for the summer who helped with the uh, running the camp, as well as a seminary student, Dan's had met at Capitol Seminary, who is from Ukraine and was there working with them. He said the camp went off great. Everybody had a tremendous time. He did not indicate, although Jim had indicated the other day, that at least seven or eight of the kids had trusted the Lord, that I know there were more. So we'll have to wait to next week to find out about that. And then this morning, see, it's right now it's about 4 in the afternoon there. This morning they had a baptism service after church out in the Dnieper River. The Dnieper River is the large river that runs through the heart of Kiev and not too far from where uh, Dan and Nick are staying. There's a, a beach down on the river probably about a mile from their apartment. And so they took, the whole church went down there this morning out on the beach, and they had a baptism service for seven, uh, seven uh, fairly new believers. And what's interesting, see, a lot of people get confused about baptism. Baptism doesn't have anything to do with salvation or impressing God or anybody else. But if you're going to have baptism, the point is you have to use it to teach the principle underlying baptism, that which it's a picture of, and that is positional truth. And in order to do that, especially in the early church, there was a public profession of faith, a testimony given by the individuals, but it was public. It was always it wasn't done like it's done in most churches today that practice baptism in, inside the church. It was usually done in a public place. and that's very unusual today for that to t- take place. But in this situation, you see an example of something like it was in the early church because when they all got out there and started to go through the baptisms and Dan and Igor performed the baptism, the large crowds began to come up from the beach because there were a lot of people down there. It's a beautiful, warm day. In Kiev, and so everybody was down at the beach. So they started coming out, and Jim Myers was tell- told me in an email this morning that they were coming out into the water to get close enough to be able to hear everything that was going on. And then afterwards, several stayed around and asked questions. So it was a tremendous opportunity to witness to a number of people who were down in, on the beach this morning. So they had a baptism, and Jim tried unsuccessfully to email me a, a, a picture of the uh, baptism this morning. But we try, shot back and forth two or three times this morning and never got it to come through. But we will get a great report and probably see some good pictures next week when when they get back. And from what I've heard, they are already planning to, everyone's planning to go back again next year. So they are, ha- are having a very uh, profitable spiritually fruitful time. Okay, open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter four. We'll just start there. We'll look at several things before we get on with our introduction to spiritual gifts. We're continuing our study in First Corinthians twelve, but before we get into First Corinthians twelve to fourteen, which is a chapter that deals with spiritual gifts we have to understand some background to spiritual gifts. It wasn't too long ago that I was asked a question by some friends related to the coming of the Holy Spirit. The question was, why did Jesus Christ have to ascend before he sent the Holy Spirit? Why couldn't he have just given the Holy Spirit right after his crucifixion? That's a very good question, and it's related to this whole dispensational shift that takes place at the time of Pentecost. So part of what we have to understand, if the overhead works this time, as we were having problems with the projector last week, is that all of this that we're learning in terms of background for spiritual gifts is important in relation to dispensations. Related to dispensations and understanding that God has a different administration or administers different periods of human history in different ways. It doesn't affect salvation. Salvation has always been by faith alone. In Christ alone, dispensationalists do not believe there are different ways of salvation, a different way of salvation in the old testament or a different way in the New Testament, but that God administers his plan. Differently in different periods of history. Now, as background to understanding this, we have to recognize that there are no spiritual gifts prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, that may seem like an obvious statement to some people, but it became crystallized in my mind last year when I did uh, delivered a paper at the Conservative Theological Society on the cessation of the sign gifts and on cessation of tongues and particularly spiritual gifts such as prophecy and knowledge, and I was asked a question that I had never been asked before, and as many years as I've studied this issue, had never occurred to me. And I not only was asked this question then at that time, but a month or so later, I was. Going over the argument that I've developed for the cessation of the sign gifts with a an old friend of mine who uh, served as my uh, sort of assistant pastor for several years back in the mid '80s, and is now an academic dean at uh, College of Biblical Studies down in Houston, and he asked me the same question, and it was uh, the question was that if the gifts of knowledge and prophecy, these revelatory gifts, Cease in the church age, then what do you do with Joel 2, uh, 21, which talks about the fact that in the millennium, or at the time of the day of the Lord, which is at the end of the tribulation period and on into the millennium, uh, there's a prophecy there that your young men will see, will dream dreams and your old men will see visions and, and your, your, uh, you know, well, your daughters, your, and the young men will prophesy. I forget the exact wording of the passage, but it clearly indicates that there's going to be prophecy and revelation at the end of the tribulation and at, during the millennium. And the question was, well, how, if, if knowledge and prophecy have ceased at the end of the church age, or at the beginning of the church age, actually, then how do you have these gifts of, revel- these revelatory gifts in the tribulation? Of course, the answer. Is fairly simple, and that is that you must understand a dispensational distinctive: that there was prophecy in the Old Testament, but it wasn't a spiritual gift. It was different. There was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no baptism of the Holy Spirit. There was no, there were no spiritual gifts given. There were certain abilities that were given through the enablement or endowment of the Holy Spirit that was temporary in the Old Testament and related to specific functions of the theocratic kingdom, that is, leadership functions, functions related to the building of the tabernacle and temple, and functions related to revelation, but they weren't spiritual gifts. So you have to make this kind of distinction. And once again, we see how the Bible is very clear and that you must understand it in terms of God having different plans for Israel and the church. God has one plan for Israel, one plan for the church. God has not replaced Israel with the church. There is a future for Israel, and there are certain distinctives related to the church and distinctives related to Israel. So last time we began to look at the background for spiritual gifts, and we saw that it is related to the ascension of Christ, and this becomes clear in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7-12. There we read, But to each one of us, that is believers, grace that is grace related to the spiritual gifts. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says in there in verse 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 68. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, in Psalm 68, the he there refers to the Lord, and there it's Yahweh. And if you were interpreting Psalm 68 within a simple Old Testament context, you would think that that was referring to just God and here it is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, which makes it clear that Yahweh in the Old Testament is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been revealed through the Incarnation today. So when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So the giving of gifts to men is directly related to what has been accomplished on the cross and Christ's ascension. And Jesus said he had to go to the Father before he could send the Holy Spirit. So that is all part of it. Now we'll get into the other verses following Ephesians 4.12 later on. But we have to understand and look at this whole situation of the ascension. Why the ascension from an Old Testament background? What happened in terms of Christ's death on the cross? What happened to God's plan and purposes? And why is it necessary for Christ to ascend before he could send the Holy Spirit? Why was it necessary for the ascension before he could give spiritual gifts? And why was the ascension necessary before the church age could be started? And all of this is going to teach us some dramatic things about the importance and the uniqueness of the church age and the spiritual life that we have been given in the church age, so we began to look last time at god 's at what had happened in terms of the kingdom program that God had uh, prophesied and foretold in the Old Testament and the kingdom program that had been expected by by Israel. The basic question is. What is to come first, the cross or the crown, or is the cross to come with the crown, after the crown, or before the crown? This was not clear from Old Testament revelation. If you just look at the Old Testament, the passages mix both advents. It is not clear at all from looking at the Old Testament that there is a distinction between the first advent and the second advent. The first advent had to do with the cross and the suffering of Christ on the cross. And the second advent is when he comes in his glory. And so these two themes, the suffering of Christ and his glorification, are both present in the Old Testament. This is seen in passages such as 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11, where it talks about the fact that the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ... And the glories to follow. Uh, we saw last time that the sufferings are described in Isaiah chapter fifty-three, verses three through seven, and the glories are mentioned in Isaiah chapter forty, verses three through five. But there is no indication in those passages that these are talking about two periods of time that are radically separated by at least now two thousand years. What is going on And what has happened Well to do that To answer the question We decided to go back And look at Matthew So I want you to turn To Matthew 12 Matthew chapter 12 Which is where we see The shift take place In Jesus' ministry During the first advent This is where The shift takes place Now this is a passage That Confuses a lot of people because they think they can commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today or they think that after they're saved, if they uh, deny the Lord, they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and so they'll lose their salvation. And once again, it's a failure to understand God's plan and purposes for Israel related to the millennial kingdom, and the promised messianic kingdom. Uh, this last week I got a question that also relates to this from a, uh, a young uh, pastor. Uh, he's not a full-time pastor at this point. He's serving in a church as an associate. But he's having some problems with the, the senior pastor there because the senior pastor is not a dispensationalist. And it's a traditional denominational church, and so every Sunday morning, they recite the Lord's Prayer. And He was asking me, well, what should I do and how should I handle that? And I said, well, there are times, and this was true in my first church, where you have churches out of ignorance practice certain things. And you have to, you can't change certain things until you teach them differently. You have to come in and teach, and many times you have to teach for several years, before the light goes off and people begin to put A and B together and realize that there are some things that they may be doing that are not correct. You don't just come in and say, okay, let's get rid of this and let's not do that. It's not biblical. You have to teach uh, dispensations. And if they don't understand the difference between Israel and the church, and the same thing is true for giving, you go into some churches. I spent some time in a Baptist church when I was in seminary and did my internship at a Baptist church and trying to get across on the issue of tithing is almost impossible with Baptists. Baptists get this drilled into them. They from Malachi that you need to bring your gifts and offerings into the storehouse of the Lord. And so they try to apply that to the church. They don't understand that in the Old Testament There were two categories of giving. There was a mandatory giving and there was a free will offering. The mandatory giving involved three different tithes. Two of those tithes were taken up every year. Tithe means 10%. And they were related to the maintenance of the priesthood and taking care of widows and orphans and then, uh, they would be, also there was a tithe that was taken up for a celebration that would take place every year in order to celebrate God's blessing on the nation. But it, the there was no department of treasury in the Old Testament. There was no uh, national bank or federal bank. As was typical in the ancient world, the temples were the places where the money was kept. And so the temple was the storehouse. The temple was the treasury for the nation. And the mandatory... The mandatory giving was related to the inc- what we would call an income tax. It was a 10% income tax on everyone's income, and it was used to support the the uh, bureaucracy, which was in this case the priesthood. The, in a theocracy, you have a a, a priestly bureaucracy to take care of all of the details, and if you don't understand the distinction between Israel and the church, you're going to go in and you're going to take passages from the Old Testament and try to apply them to the New Testament. Of course, then you always have people ask the question, well, does that mean the Old Testament isn't uh, important for today? And of course, that is uh, a completely wrong statement. It's important. But you have to understand why and how it's important. There may be principles of application, but remember the Old Testament is written to Jews under the Mosaic Law. It's like a letter being written to your next-door neighbor. And while there may be some information in there that you can glean and learn stuff from, it's not your mail. It's their mail, and most Christians are trying to read the Old Testament as if it's addressed to them instead of addressed to Israel. And as we've seen in our study in 1 Corinthians, the Old Testament is vitally important because it is the background to the New Testament. And you really can't understand much of the New Testament. In fact, what we'll see in our study on the Ascension is you can't understand the Ascension if you don't understand the Old Testament, because every time we get into a passage dealing with the Ascension, we are going to be looking at passages from the Old Testament. They all quote Psalms, Psalm 68, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. We'll uh, take several passages back into Numbers and Exodus as well. So to understand what is going on in the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is directly applicable to church age believers. It's not. And when you start applying things like like tithing, you start going into Matthew and applying the uh, disciples' prayers, it should be called, not the Lord's Prayer, but you start applying the disciples' prayer to believers in this age, you're you are taking something that is for someone else, for another purpose, and misapplying it. Now, with the disciples' prayer, that was a prayer that that is related to the kingdom message that we're going to study this morning. The first part of Christ's ministry dealt with a proclamation of the kingdom, that the message of John and of Jesus was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the disciples' prayer, Jesus prays, thy kingdom come. It is a prayer related to the immediacy of this kingdom message. And if you don't understand the importance of the kingdom message in Matthew, then you can't properly interpret what's going on in the disciples' prayer. Furthermore, if you don't understand the kingdom message in Matthew, you won't understand why Christ ascended and why we're not in the kingdom today, and you will again end up making some uh, major mistakes. So we're taking time to go through Matthew, just an overview to see what the what has taken place in Christ's ministry. So if you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. What has happened here is Jesus has cast out a demon and the Pharisees as the representative leadership of the nation as a whole is accusing him of casting out the demon by the power of Beelzebub, which is a title for Satan. And then at the end of his uh, counter to that, Jesus states in verse 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. He has cast out the demons by means of the power of God the Holy Spirit, and so to accuse him of doing this by by the power of Satan instead of the power of the Spirit is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that means to treat the Spirit lightly or irreverently, And it was a national sin. This is not a personal sin. First thing that most people come up with is they think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is personal. It is not. See, in America, one of my hobby horses, you probably noticed this last year, is pounding this extreme individualism that we have in our American cosmic thinking. In American cosmic thinking, we have the concept of the rugged individual, and this goes back to the early days of and pioneer days. Now, there's, there are good things and bad things about that principle. One of the bad things is when you get over into Christianity, you forget, you fail to be able to comprehend the importance of the group. See, there's corporate issues and there are individual issues. And God, although there are individuals that are being saved in Israel during Christ's first advent, there are many individuals who are responding to his messianic claims. The nation as a whole, as represented by its leadership, is rejecting that claim. And so the nation comes under divine judgment because as a whole, as a uh, as a corporate body, Represented by their leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are rejecting Christ's messianic claim. And as a result of that, Jesus says, because uh, you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit against the Spirit, it will not be forgiven you. Now, does that mean that some of those Pharisees could not be saved? No, it doesn't. They could be saved. There were Pharisees and Sadducees that became saved over the next few years. There were many individuals in Israel who were saved during Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, around uh, 3,000. There are other times that were told in Acts when 4,000 were saved or 5,000 were saved. There were large groups of Jews that were saved after Pentecost. But the leadership of Israel still failed to accept Jesus' messianic claims. The result was that they were taken out under divine discipline in 70 A.D. because they had committed as a nation the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So did believers suffer? Certainly some believers suffered during that time. There were, most of the Christians were told from history left Jerusalem because they understood the the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 24. And so they knew that the nation was going out under divine discipline, and they left Jerusalem, so they were protected. But their lives were uh, disrupted. They lost possessions. They lost property. There were many things that happened as a result of that, but they were protected, and God took care of them even in the midst of that judgment. But the nation is judged because they commit As a corporate body under the representative legal, under the legal representative leadership, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 34. Verse 34, Jesus accuses the disciples, and he says, either, or let's look at verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Now don't make the mistake of thinking that this fruit is the the moral transformation of a life. He's talking about what they teach, not what they how they live. And then in verse 34, he said, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus is not uh, making a statement here that is going to win friends and influence people. He has not gone through the latest seminary in order to, uh, learn how to bring lots of people into the congregation. He accuses these unbelievers of being a brood of snakes, poisonous vipers, and he says, How can you, being evil, doctrine of total depravity, that all men are by nature evil because they are fallen creatures? How can you, being evil, speak good things? Notice when he's talking about fruit, the 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 metaphor of verse 33 the tree producing fruit is made clear in verse 34 scripture interprets scripture that the fruit is what they speak that is what they teach for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and so in verse 34 he begins to rebuke them and for their uh, false teaching and for their failure to understand the Old Testament, and to trust in him as the Messiah. Then we have to ask the question, Then last week we got down to the chart on millennialism. We saw there's a major difference between the way amillennialism teaches Christianity and (sighs) premillennialism. Once again, we're having this problem. It just turns itself off. Well, it's we got to the same point last week and everything screwed up again. It'll come back up. Okay. We have amillennialism. Now, in amillennialism is the view that there's no literal kingdom on the earth. There is no literal thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. In amillennialism, there is the rejection of Christ as Messiah. There is uh, that when Israel rejects Christ as Messiah, God then rejects Israel and removes Israel ...from his plan and replaces Israel with the church. Therefore, instead of taking Old Testament promises and prophecies related to the kingdom in a literal manner, they are now spiritualized or they become allegorized to refer to heaven. And the promised land, the literal land that God promised Abraham is no longer interpreted that way. It is now interpreted as heaven. And so... The promises are taken from Israel, and they're given to the church. And in amillennialism, the church age is tantamount to the Messianic kingdom. You didn't know you were living in the kingdom, but it's tantamount to the Messianic kingdom because Jesus is now ruling and reigning from the throne of David in heaven. And the church age will end with the second coming of Christ, and that ends history. History. Then in premillennialism, by contrast, what we believe is that the church age is an intercalation. It is a parenthesis in in the history of Israel coming between the cutting off of Messiah, according to Daniel 9.27, and the Daniel 70th week, which is the tribulation period, a seven-year period that brings to completion God's plan for Israel. The church age believers will be, uh, according to dispensational premillennialism, church age believers will be raptured at the end of the church age, and then there will be a seven-year tribulation that's the last seven years uh, of Israel's history decreed by God. And then Jesus Christ comes back literally at the second coming to the earth and establishes his thousand-year rule and reign on the earth. So this is the background of being able to understand the kingdom concept. And we have to ask the question, well, what happened to the kingdom? Look at Matthew 3 2. We're just going to skip our way through Matthew to understand this kingdom background. You have to understand this to properly understand the ascension and then in order to properly understand the giving of spiritual gifts in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 John the Baptist shows up on the scene with his message his message is simple repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the word translated at hand uh, in giadozo means near it is approaching. It is at the door. It is about to come to pass. So he is announcing as the forerunner of the Messiah the coming of this kingdom. Now, if you notice, if you take, were to take the time to read through uh, Matthew chapter 3, you would discover that there is no explanation of what the kingdom consists He simply announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the Jews from their Old Testament background understood what the kingdom was. They understood all of the glories of the kingdom. They understood from uh, Isaiah and from Ezekiel that this would be a time of unprecedented prosperity for Israel. It would be a time of perfect environment in Israel. It would be a time when there would be a temple and that all the nations on the earth would come to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple it would be a time when there was no more warfare it would be a time of that would be unprecedented in all of human history and so they knew exactly what John was speaking about when he said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the word repent is an important word to understand here. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. It doesn't mean to have remorse. It means to change your mind. It is a translation of the Greek word metanoeo, which means to have a second thought or to think in a fresh way about something. It has to do with thinking. And John's challenge to the Jews was that they had to change their entire foundation of thought. They had to change the entire foundation of their thought. Repentance isn't just changing an idea here or there, but it is recognizing that the entire frame of reference that they had was wrong. Their frame of reference was works, and they had to change that frame of reference from the work system, the legalistic system of the Pharisees, to a grace system. The Pharisees had established a system of doing good which produced simply a superficial or inadequate forgiveness. It was an arbitrary forgiveness. Their whole concept of forgiveness was that somehow you could pay back from your own good for the evil that you have done. But the problem that we have presented in Scripture is if God is a truly righteous God, ...and a just God, then how can man get rid of evil or sin? How can man deal with the sin problem? Scriptures teach that this sin problem must be dealt with. There must be a blood atonement. There must be a sacrifice for that sin. Now, John the Baptist understood all of that, and he knew that there there had to be this sacrifice. But even in his thinking... He does not distinguish between the Old Testament suffering Messiah and the Old Testament glorified Messiah. So when he speaks of kingdom, now he's going back into the Old Testament, and he's picking up this idea of the, the kingdom. Now let's take, take a minute, and I have a chart on the overhead to look at how kingdom is used in the Scripture. First of all, we have kingdom used in the sense of the universal sovereign kingdom of God. This is the the reign of God in reference to his sovereignty that has always been. It is the unending and never-ending sovereign kingdom of God. Then in terms of human history, there are various manifestations of God's rule on the planet. Underneath here we have a timeline that represents the the dispensational chart. The first manifestation we have of God's reign on the planet is during the time of perfect environment in the Garden of Eden, when God is, has his habitation in Eden, and he comes to walk in the garden on a daily basis with Adam and Isha. That kingdom ends with man's fall into sin, and there is not a return to a presence of God on the earth until you have the theocratic kingdom, which is established through the law at Mount Sinai. What happens then is you see God appearing in the form of the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory, Shachan, the Hebrew word that, incidentally, it's never called Shekinah in the Old Testament. That is a word that was developed by the rabbis during the, intertestamental period in order to describe this dwelling of God in the Old Testament. And God God's throne, according to Psalm 90, was between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Shekinah dwells in the tabernacle and then the temple, and this was represented by the pillar cloud and the pillar of fire. That is God's presence on the earth and Initially under the Mosaic law, God is the ruler of Israel, but then Israel finally rejects that in 1 Samuel 7 and they want to have a king like all of the other nations. So then God gives them a king, a human king to rule uh, as his representative, and you have the first king as Saul, Saul fails in carnality and he is replaced by David, and David's son Solomon represent the United Kingdom. It is David to whom God gives a covenant that there will be an eternal king from his descendants. There will be an eternal king from his descendants who will and there will be an eternal dynasty. Now, David recognizes in the Psalms that he knows the depravity of man. He recognizes that you can't have this eternal kingdom that is being promised, that is being foretold by the prophets, uh, unless there is some sort of change take place in the nation. And he knows that Solomon is not going to be this perfect king. We'll see this in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 these other psalms that talk about the the rule of this Messiah, that he is seen not only as a human king, but that all human kings will fail, so there must be something superior about this human king. That this king is going to be divine. He is going to be able to surmount the problems of depravity. David recognizes that the nation is made up of, of sinners and depraved people, and they will never be able to bring in this kind of perfect utopic kingdom that is promised in the Old Testament. The leadership can't do it. We studied all of this in Judges, if you remember. By the way, if you haven't or weren't here during that time uh, when I taught through Judges, that is one of the most significant series. ...that I have taught since I have been here. And there are many people on tape, I think, that would rather study the New Testament than the Old Testament. But there's no book in the Bible that gives a greater social and political commentary than the book of Judges. Because Judges points this very problem out that there can't have stability in the nation if the people fail and they operate on moral relativism and if the leaders fail, and if the priesthood fail. In other words, a human kingdom will never be able to solve the problems of mankind because the problems of depravity are far greater than what man can solve. So there has to be a divine solution to the human problem. And in the progress of Revelation, God is going to supply a human king. And once again, we're going to discover that a human system of politics or a human system of government can't provide the solution. This will be evidenced in the rest of the Old Testament that the kingship can't solve the problems. Something greater has to come. And so David foresees this in some of the Psalms where he recognizes God must supply a king that is more than a human king will also be a divine king. And it is the Messiah who comes and offers the kingdom during the first advent, and it is at this time that the Jews reject that kingdom. So starting in Matthew 13, Jesus will say to his disciples, will start teaching his disciples in parables, and they say, Lord, why are you teaching us in parables? And he said, well, because uh, basically he says that I'm going to talk to you in secret code now because I have been rejected. And there is a major shift in the way he teaches and he introduces in the parables of Matthew 13 the mystery form of the kingdom. And the kingdom itself is not going to be established on earth then until Jesus comes at the second coming. So what we learn from uh, From Matthew is that the kingdom is postponed. It is not inaugurated. It is postponed. And there is a preparation. This is what we learn here in the mystery form of the kingdom in the parables of Matthew 13 is that Jesus is preparing a people. See, a king must have a people. And so Jesus is preparing during this age a people For himself that who will rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom and that's a critical piece of this this whole picture is to understand that during this age. Jesus is calling out a a special people for himself, and this is why you have this mystery form of the kingdom where you have the tares and the wheat growing up together and the sheep and the goats, and then at the end of that time, there will be a judgment and a separation of the unbelievers from the believers, and it is the believers who go into the uh, millennial messianic kingdom, and that has a Temporal ending with the destruction of the present heavens and the earth. And then we go, after the uh, the destruction of the present heavens and the earth, we go into the eternal theocratic kingdom. Now, in the Old Testament, you have the theocracy with no king. Then you have a united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon until 931 B.C., Then that kingdom split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They went out into exile in 722 B.C. in the north, 586 B.C. in the south, and then returned and started to rebuild the temple in 516, and that is the partial return. And, and partial nation that is there for the arrival of the Messiah at the first advent. This is all background to what John says when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jews listening to him would interpret that in terms of their background with the kingship. So in Matthew 3, 2, uh, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he quotes a passage we'll probably get to next week from Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So here Matthew takes a passage that has specific application to the second coming. specifically referring to the second coming, and is applying it here in relationship to John's ministry. John is the one who is preparing the nation for the arrival of the Messiah. They will not respond to that preparation, and that is why the kingdom was not inaugurated, but... John is the one who, at that point in history, is preparing. There's a certain contingency here that we will look at. So when John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is teaching an idea that's known by everybody and he is basically saying repent for it is this kingdom this kingdom that is promised in Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel this kingdom that has been promised to the uh, to be have a king that would be the eternal descendant of David it is that kingdom that is at hand the long anticipated kingdom for Israel this would be the culmination in history of Israel's existence, and so John is saying the hour is here. You've been expecting it. You've been looking for it. It's now here and makes that announcement. Now, if you go on and you look at the remainder of the chapter, the following verses, we learn a few things about John. Now John himself, verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. See, this gives us a picture. He's, he's a complete rebel. He has no idea how to uh, dress for success. And he is viewed as just some sort of wild man who is out in the wilderness, but this attracts attention. He is coming and he's dressing in the tradition of Elijah. And this is going to plug John the Baptist into a flow of Old Testament prophecy that the forerunner to the Messiah is Elijah. And we're told that he had quite an impact. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. He attracted huge crowds. Now this went on for three or four years before Jesus showed up. He is preaching his message, and calling the nation to change their thinking. And he is baptizing them. And the significance of baptism, once again, is identification. When they repent, he is baptizing them to show that they have identified themselves with the coming kingdom and the kingdom message. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This has to do with the kingdom message. This is not a salvation message. Let me make this clear. John is not preaching how to get to heaven. Sometimes you'll run into people who think this is the gospel message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not the kingdom message. There's no mention of atonement. There's no mention of faith in Christ. There's no mention of believing God. It is not the gospel message. It is the message related to the coming of the kingdom for Israel. And so the people had, to, the issue was, are they going to repent of their works system or are they going to, uh, uh, and trust God? Or are they going to continue to follow the Pharisees? Then in Matthew 3, 7, the Pharisees come out to see what John is doing, and when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them, Brood of vipers Where do we hear that? See, Jesus said the same thing later says the same thing later on in Matthew thirteen or Matthew twelve. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, the phrase vipers picks up the concept of poisonous serpents. And that imagery takes us all the way back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden and teaching an alternate concept of God's rule and reign and, in fact, challenging what God has revealed. So he identifies them with Satan through the imagery of a serpent. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, what wrath is it that John is talking about? Where did he learn this concept? This is the wrath that we associate with the second coming, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. But here, John has these things all mixed together. See, he's not seeing that there's this time gap between the first advent and second advent. There, that He sees the wrath to come as being an immediate thing in his time. He's expecting it at any time, knowing that the wrath must precede the glorious arrival of the kingdom. So when he sees the Pharisees, he becomes angry at them, and he challenges them because they are caught up in teaching religious activity and gimmicks and not relying upon the grace of God. And then he announces judgment. Skip down to verse 10. He announced a judgment. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Where have we seen this image? Jesus uses the same imagery when he rejects the nation in Matthew chapter 12 and rejects the Pharisees. And so, once again, there's the emphasis on a judgment theme that before... The kingdom can come. There must be judgment. There's always judgment associated with salvation. You go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. Every time... Uh, you have the mention of salvation in Scripture. There's also always judgment. There's judgment in the garden. God pronou- pronounces a curse on the serpent, on the woman, on the man, and then there's grace. Judgment and grace and salvation always go together. At the time of the flood, there is a judgment that takes place on the earth, but there is also salvation and grace through the deliverance of Noah and his family. You go to the Exodus event. What do you have? Judgment on on the Egyptians and the gracious deliverance of the Jews and salvation, as they are they're delivered from slavery. So there's always this message through Scripture that salvation comes, but there must also be judgment. And so we recognize that the kingdom is not this sort of sentimental utopic view of human viewpoint. It's not some sort of psychologized. Form of the kingdom, but it, it, it is a political kingdom that is established once sin is judged and dealt with. And of course, what is referred to here in terms of being cut down and thrown into the fire is the baptism of fire that takes place at the end of the tribulation, at the second advent of Christ, with the destruction of all of the evil established by the Antichrist. So, John in Matthew 3 is warning that this is imminent. It could happen at any point. Now let's see what Jesus message is in the next chapter. Turn over turn the page to Matthew 4:17. Jesus comes on the scene and in Matthew 4:17 we're told from that time this is from the time of his Uh, beginning of his public ministry, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message that Jesus proclaimed was not, uh, Believe on me and my atoning sacrifice and you'll be saved, but repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is related to the kingdom message. It's the same message of urgency related to the end of Israel's history and the coming of the messianic kingdom. You see, God could have ended history at the first advent. He could have ended everything. If Israel had accepted Christ as their Savior, the kingdom would have come in in the first century. There would have been no church age. It is a legitimate offer of the kingdom. And this is one thing that we must see in God's plan is that there is contingency. There are are contingencies in God's plan for negative volition. And this is what happens in people's lives. One of the things that you often hear people do at times of crisis in their life is they'll say afterward, they'll say, well, this must be God's will. Well, remember, we have to distinguish two different kinds of will in terms of God's will. There's God's prescriptive will and there is God's permissive will. What God uh, allows to happen, and certainly whatever happens in human history is what God allowed to happen, but that doesn 't mean that if you 've gone through some crisis that that was god 's uh, best will, shall we say that that was god's that was in conformity to god 's uh, revealed will because you may be in a certain situation where you are treated uh, wrongly by government authorities, for example, someone in the, uh, in some uh, Islamic country, may be persecuted for their faith. They may be thrown in prison. They may be tortured because they trust in Christ as their Savior. They may even lose, lose their life. In that case, we would say, well, God allowed that. But, see, they are the victim of injustice. They're the victim of cruelty. They're the victim of a religious system. Those things are not God's revealed will. So one thing that people do is we try, we just, it's in a way we're just blaming God for whatever's happened in our life. God has allowed, because of free will, God has allowed contingency in human history. But just because something happens, something bad happens, don't blame God for it by saying, well, that was God's will. God allowed it to happen, but it may have happened as the result of people being negative to doctrine and making sinful decisions. That certainly isn't God's will, but God allows it to happen. So be very careful how you use that phrase, well, such and such was just God's will. It was certainly God's decreed will, which includes both good and evil, that the church age come into existence. But it was not God's revealed will or his moral will because there was a legitimate plan for Israel to repent at the first coming. They failed to do that, so God went to, as it were, in a, talking through, purely from our perspective, went to plan B. But God's been going to plan B ever since the garden. It was not God's desired will or God's revealed will for Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God allowed it to happen, so when it did happen, we went to plan B. It wasn't God's will in terms of his revealed will or his moral will for Cain to murder Abel. But God's, it was within God's permissive will, and so there's contingency there. And so, after Cain killed Abel, we went to plan C. You know, we're about plan whatever it is to the one thousandth or one billionth power by now because of contingency. Nevertheless, in sovereignty, God is con- still in control of everything. Nothing's out of control. God works even the negative decisions of man to his glory. So there is a real contingent I mean a real offer of the kingdom to Israel, a legitimate offer. And the kingdom could have come in at the at the at the first coming. So this is the message of Jesus. It's the same message of the disciples. You could turn over to Matthew chapter ten, verse five and five through seven. Jesus sends out the disciples It says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. In other words, go only to the house of Israel. Verse 6, Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are not to give the message of the kingdom to the Gentiles. Why? Because the kingdom wasn't for the Gentiles. The kingdom message is for Jews only. That's why I keep saying this is not a soteriological message. This is a message related to Israel's future and in in, in God's plan and purposes for Israel. They were to go to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, preach what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 7. The kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, but they go to the nations. They go exclusively, I mean, they don't go to the nations. They go exclusively to Israel, and this shows us that this is a Jewish issue that the history of Israel is the foundation and cornerstone of the history of God's plan or the the or is the cornerstone of God's plan for human history. Why do I say that? because in at the end of matthew twenty three Jesus says, I will not return to you to to Israel <coughs> until you say Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is not going to return at the second coming until Israel turns nationally and corporately under their leadership, and this will take place when they're in the wilderness of Basra, until they turn to the Lord and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they accept Jesus as the Messiah. So we see that Israel is the cornerstone of history. When they reject uh, Jesus, there is a shift in God's plan. He went to contingency plan B. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to compare this with Matthew 17. Matthew 11, uh, 10 and following to Matthew 17. Matthew 11 relates to John the Baptist. For this is he, that is John the Baptist, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, that is, it was rejected, and they were hostile to the message of the kingdom. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied um, I've lost my verse here. all the prophets and the law have prophesied until now, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah. Who is to come? That's the key verse. There's contingency here. This is one of the interesting dilemmas in understanding the gospel is that that John the Baptist could have been Elijah. This is what Jesus says in verse 14. If you are willing to receive it, that is the message of the kingdom, then John the Baptist would would have fulfilled all of the prophecies related to Elijah as the forerunner. But they don't accept that, so you go to Matthew seventeen ten, and the disciples are saying uh to Jesus, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So in Matthew eleven, John the Baptist could have been Elijah, but then Matthew thirteen or Matthew twelve comes with the rejection Of Christ, And in Matthew 17, Elijah is now future. In verse 12, he says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So here we have an example of real contingency in the plan of God. So after Christ died on the cross, then there is this split between the first advent and the second advent that is caused by the rebellion of Israel and their rejection of the kingdom. So the kingdom is set aside. The kingdom is set aside. It has not been started. It has not been inaugurated and will not be inaugurated until Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming. Now one other point I want you to notice and that is at the end of verse 12 of Matthew 17:12, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Now this is a term we studied back when we were studying Daniel and in Daniel chapter 7 uh, Jesus is presented as the Son of Man in contrast to all of the kingdoms of man. They're represented by various beasts. They're represented by uh, the, the Persia was represented by the bear, and Greece was represented by the leopard. And there was a horrible beast that represented uh, Rome and the end time revived Roman Empire. And all of man's kingdoms are represented as beastly. But in contrast to that, the one who comes to establish his kingdom is the son of man indicating the, that he represents the, the true intention, or God's true intention of humanity, and his His kingdom is what humanity will be. There's a lesson there, and that is that no human kingdom will ever solve man's problems. Every human kingdom, including the United States of America, will always establish or always um, include these beastly, Characteristics, because of the uh, depravity of man, so we after Christ is rejected by by the Jews, we come to the last set of references in John chapter sixteen, in John chapter sixteen, Jesus says, "I came forth from the Father and have come into the world again, I leave the world." And go to the Father. So he announces the fact that he must go to the Father. He's not going to stay and establish the kingdom. And in John 16:7, we're told that Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you that is the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the comforter, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And this sets up the stage for the coming of the church age and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is why the coming of the Holy Spirit Distinguishes and and inaugurates the church age. There are some people that think that that the church doesn't start until Acts. Uh, uh, further on in Acts, a number of different places in Acts are suggested. But the end, the significant thing is the coming of the Holy Spirit, which occurs on Pentecost. And so, hyper-dispensationalists, have a major problem with understanding the nature of the kingdom and everything that I have said this morning is, uh, is a problem because see, there's still an element of contingency at the beginning of the church age where there's still an offer of the kingdom. Peter's making that clear. Nevertheless, there has been a, a shift to take place because now every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Well, we'll pick up with that, and that sets the stage for... Why the Holy Spirit must come. Jesus must ascend to heaven before the Holy Spirit can descend, and it is the descent of the Holy Spirit that starts the church age and brings uh, with him spiritual gifts. So we'll begin a study of that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to understand your plan and purposes for history. That you came, you sent your son at the first advent to die on the cross for our sins, that he came to offer the kingdom, but that kingdom was rejected, so it has been postponed, and that during this age you are performing a unique work in human history to raise up a unique group of people in the church to demonstrate uh, certain truths in the angelic conflict. Father, everything is revolves around the work of Christ on the cross. So we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make this take this time to make this both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Every single sin that you can commit and that you will commit has been paid for by Christ on the cross. Right now, right where you sit, you have the opportunity to make that salvation sure and certain by simply trusting in Christ as your Savior. Once you have done that, you enter into the family of God, you receive the uh, imputation of perfect righteousness, and you are declared just, and you receive eternal life. All of these things and many more happen at the instant of salvation, and you can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.